Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. What is my responsibility as a husband? What is my responsibility as a wife? What is my responsibility as a parent? Beyond that, you might ask questions like, what is my responsibility, my Christian responsibility as, a, as an employer or as an employee or as a neighbor? Eventually, if you start asking those kinds of questions, you will get around to asking, what is my responsibility as a citizen of the state? What should my attitude be toward government? What should my responsibility be? What are my duties as a Christian citizen? You might ask something like, are my attitudes, responsibilities, and duties different than a non-Christian's should be? Is my motive different toward the state as would uh, be the motive of someone that didn't know Jesus Christ? If you start uh, searching the scriptures to find the answers to those kinds of questions, you will eventually find yourself in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 13, we have the most extended passage in all of the New Testament on a Christian's relationship to government. So will you turn with me to Romans chapter 13 to find the answers to some of these questions I have just asked. It's very appropriate that Romans would contain these kinds of instructions because you see Rome was the Washington, D.C., of the first century. Furthermore, the subject of the book of Romans is righteousness. And in discussing our relationship to government, Paul has some things to say about righteousness in terms of what the government should do and our right relationship to government. So look with me at Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, where Paul says, Let every soul soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, You also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, 
taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In this passage, Paul discusses the relationship of a Christian to the state. In the verses that follow, he discusses the responsibility of the Christian to people within the state. But if you wish to know what, as a Christian, your responsibility is toward government, there is no better passage in all of the New Testament to study than this one. Actually, what Paul does in this passage is begin by giving us the responsibility that we have. And it can be summed up in one short, simple word. Beginning at verse 2 and going down through verse 5, he gives us the reasons why we should fulfill the responsibility he mentions. And then he concludes the passage with giving some very pointed, practical results of that kind of a responsibility. So let's begin by focusing on just the responsibility. He says in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Before we look at the responsibility itself, let me just point out that this is rather an abrupt change of subject. You will recall at the end of chapter 12, he discussed the subject of love. Now, abruptly, with no transition, he simply says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. What is the connection between what went on at the end of chapter 12 and what takes place at the beginning of chapter 13? Well, suggestions range all the way from the fact that at the end of chapter 12, he was talking about vengeance and telling us that we should not take vengeance because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Therefore, he is discussing government and in essence saying, uh, you should not take vengeance on an evildoer because that's God's job and he uses government to do that. That's one possible connection. Another suggestion is that he has been talking about government, I'm sorry, love at the end of chapter 12, and in talking about government, he is suggesting that by fulfilling your responsibility to government, you are doing the loving thing. That suggestion strikes me as being preferable between the two. But whatever the connection, it is obvious that he immediately shifts gears and talks about our responsibility to government. And he says very simply, it is that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. We are to submit to their authority. Notice he says that every soul is to be subject to the governing authorities. The word every is key here. Of course, in the context of the book of Romans, he has in mind Christians. But from the standpoint of politics in the first century, it's an interesting little statement because there were three types of people in the Roman Empire. There were, of course, slaves, and they had no rights whatsoever. Then there were the rank and file. They are the ones who paid the taxes. 
And finally, there were citizens. They were the elite in the Roman Empire. Now, Paul is saying to Christians, whether you are a slave, a member of the rank and file, or an actual bona fide citizen, whatever your political status, every soul who names the name of Christ should submit, place himself under the authority of the government. He says, that is your responsibility. Very simply, that virtually sums up everything else that's said in this entire passage. The one thing you need to know about your responsibility is that you are to submit. Now, for the rest of the passage, at least down to, through verse 5, he tells us why we are to do that. He gives us three reasons why we should submit to government. Look at verse 1, for example. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So the first reason that he gives is that government is ordained by God. That's the point he's making in the latter part of verse 1, and for that matter, in all of verse 2. The reason you as a Christian should submit is because government is ordained by God. The scripture repeatedly teaches this, especially in the book of Daniel. Put your finger in Romans chapter 13 for just a second and turn to Daniel chapter 4. I recall several years ago when I was teaching the book of Daniel, encountering statements like the one in chapter 4, verse 17, repeatedly through the book. This is a major point that uh, Daniel makes throughout his book. This is not an isolated kind of statement. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, he says this, In order that the living may know, I'm in the latter part of the verse, that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. That statement is an emphatic declaration that God rules in the kingdom of men. He gives it to whomsoever he will. He rises up and he puts down leaders. God has ordained government and government is appointed by him. Now back in Romans chapter 13, Paul draws a conclusion. In verse 2 he says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. He says, Since government is ordained by God, you should submit. Or to say the same thing another way, conversely, if you resist, the government, you are resisting the ordinance of God because God has ordained government. In verse 2, he uses two different Greek words for resist. One means to set against, 
and has the idea that you're going to do battle against an enemy. And the other is uh, one that means to withdraw and simply oppose any kind of a withdrawal from an opposition against, a battle against, is contrary to what God intended. God ordained government, and we should submit to it. One form of resistance, then, would be rebellion, or insurrection of some kind. Perhaps the modern word would be coup. Another form of resisting the government might be simply a crime, one that breaks the law of the state. Paul's point is that our responsibility is to submit, and the reason is because government is ordained by God. That's pretty heavy stuff. Suppose if you were looking at this seriously, you would say, do you really mean to say that all government is ordained by God? Does that mean that unjust government is ordained by God? How do you explain a Stalin in Russia or a Hitler in Germany? Were those put up by God? Well, I think several things could be said to that. Uh, one is that what this passage is basically teaching is that God has ordained government as an institution. Notice he says in verse 2, whosoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. This institution God has ordained. That is not to deny that God is sovereign over the kingdom of men and that nobody rises to the top, at least without his permission. But I don't think that's quite the point Paul is making. Paul is insisting that God has ordained government, and just because some governments go bad and don't do what God intended doesn't mean that the institution is bad and that we should resist it. For example, God has instituted marriage some marriages go bad. Some people abuse the institution of marriage. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't participate in the institution or that when it goes bad that we should somehow uh, withdraw or that we no longer have a responsibility within it. The Bible makes very clear that it can go bad in the hands of men and yet as Christians we still have a responsibility to it. Or to say the same thing another way, as some have pointed out, bad government is better than no government. We tend to focus on the evil committed by bad government as if to suggest that that somehow relieves us of the responsibility to submit to it. But even bad government is better than no government. Because if there were no government, there would be chaos and worse evil, perhaps. So God has instituted government and granted some governments go bad. Bad things are done in the name of government, but the institution is ordained by God and we should submit to it. No less than Jesus Christ 
was treated unjustly by Pontius Pilate. Government. But he submitted. The Apostle Paul was falsely accused and illegally arrested and detained. He spent two years in prison in Caesarea, not because he had broken any law or committed any crime. It was all unjust. And after that, he was transported by ship from Caesarea all the way to Rome, where the book of Acts closes with him in prison again. But Paul submitted to government. So Jesus and Paul both experienced unjust treatment from government, and yet they submitted to the institution of it. So Paul's argument in this passage is that we are to submit for the simple reason government is ordained by God. There is a second reason. He says in verse 3, for. Now remember back in the middle of verse 1 he said for, and that introduced the first reason. Now in verse 3 he says for, and he gives us the second reason we are to submit to government. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And there are several observations in these verses that we need to make, but be all that as it may, let me first just summarize what's being said here. Paul is teaching that you ought to submit to government. That's the responsibility laid out in verse 1. The reason God has ordained government, and secondly, God has ordained to punish evildoers through government. So one of the reasons you ought to submit is uh, to avoid being punished if you don't. A very practical kind of reason. Now, with that in mind, uh, let me point out several things. These verses are really giving us the God-ordained purpose of government. And that's twofold. These two verses are teaching that God has ordained that government promote that which is good and that government punish that which is evil. That is the broad brush of the purpose of government. Notice he says, verse 3, rulers are a terror, not a terror to good works, but to evil. He says in verse 3, do what is good and you will have praise of the same. Verse 4, he is a minister to you for good. So government is to promote that which is good, to have some kind of a system, ideally, where that which is good is rewarded. On the other hand, he says, verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? If you do evil, you should be. Do good and you won't be. Drop down to verse 4. If you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. 
He is God's minister to, a, uh, to be an avenger, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So the statements are woven in and out the two verses, but the point is very clear, and that is that government's purpose is to promote good on the one hand and punish evil on the other. Therefore, you ought to submit, because if you don't, and you break the law, and you do evil, you will be punished. That's the point Paul is attempting to make. Now, one other little observation in passing. Verse 4 says that government does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is an instrument of death seems to me that this passage is giving government the power to punish with the sword. In other words, the government has the power to practice capital punishment. Not just the power, the divine right. The Bible is very clear that God intends that capital punishment be practiced. I have uh, talked to some people who have objected to capital punishment, and they have argued the Bible is against it. I have been taken back by that kind of a response and said, it is. How did you ever conclude a thing like that? And they point out that the Ten Commandments say, do not kill. Well, isn't capital punishment killing? So the Bible's against killing, and therefore it's against war, and it's against capital punishment. Now, let me respond to that. In Genesis chapter 9, God laid down the principle that if you shed man's blood, your blood should be shed. The original text in the Scripture on capital punishment is Genesis chapter 9. Furthermore, <laughs> the same man who wrote in Exodus 20, Thou shalt not kill, Moses, wrote the rest of the Pentateuch, and the rest of the Pentateuch clearly teaches capital punishment. So simply make no mistake about it, the Old Testament teaches capital punishment. But you say, it says don't kill. Ah, uh, yes. That statement in the Decalogue of Exodus chapter 20 literally means don't murder. The Hebrew word translated kill in the Ten Commandments is the word for murder. What the Bible is forbidding in the Ten Commandments is you taking the law into your own hands and executing someone or killing them. That you do not have the right to do. But what the Bible also recognizes is that God has ordained government and that government does have the right to take life under certain circumstances. And one is if someone commits murder. Perhaps there are others, but that one is very clear. It was clearly established in Genesis chapter 9. It is clearly established in the Mosaic Law. Now, someone might argue, 
that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? And I have had that brought up to me on on more than one occasion. The answer is this text. This is the one verse in the New Testament that teaches capital punishment. The text clearly says God gave government the sword. That clearly is teaching that government has the right given to them by God to practice capital punishment. So while it is true that technically Christians are not under the Mosaic law, we're under the law of Christ, Nevertheless, the New Testament, under the law of Christ, if you will, teaches that government has the right to practice capital punishment. By the way, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul was arrested. In one of his speeches, he said, If I have done anything worthy of death, I'm willing to die. So that Paul recognized the right of government to practice capital punishment. While I'm at it, I think this passage is talking about citizens and about them obeying the laws within the state. But since we're talking about uh, murder and capital punishment, let me also just insert in passing, I think the same thing applies to war. That is not to argue that all wars are just or even that all wars should be fought. At the same time, it is to recognize that the same man who said, Thou shalt not murder in the Ten Commandments, also not only taught in the law that it was okay for government to practice capital punishment, yea, their responsibility, but he was also the one who engaged in war on occasion. That from a biblical point of view, the state has the right to have an army and to protect itself, and that might necessitate going to war. You will recall in Romans chapter 12, The Apostle Paul taught, as much as lieth within you, be at peace with all men. But sometimes that is simply not possible. So, government under those circumstances has the right and the responsibility to go to war. But the point Paul is making in Romans chapter 13 is that as Christian citizens, our responsibility is to submit to government. One of the reasons we should do that is simply that God has ordained government and to resist the government is to resist what he has ordained. Secondly, a very practical reason, if you resist the government, they have the right to punish. That's their responsibility. And it can be carried so far as capital punishment. Basically, in the process of saying that, he is teaching that they are to promote the good and to punish the evil. Before we go on, one other observation. I guess this would argue that the the state has the right to uh, have a police force, right? Punish evil? And that the police have the right to carry guns? Uh, Swords. I think it's rather interesting, if you wanted to put both of these together, promote good and punish evil, The police force is probably as good an illustration from the government's point of view as you can find. Did you ever notice what a lot of police cars say on the side of them? What are they called? Peace officers. They are to punish evildoers and so maintain the 
peace. That is a divine institution. That's a divine idea. Matter of fact, did you know that police officers are in the ministry? This passage calls government officials God's ministers. Now, in the English language in this country, we call pastors ministers and government officials all kinds of interesting things. <laughs> um, but in some countries, they call government officials ministers. And they are. The word simply means servants. So government officials are servants. Uh, pastors are servants. Police officers are servants to promote the peace and, if need be, punish peacebreakers. There is a third reason in this passage for why we ought to submit to government. He says in verse 5, Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now, in order to understand what he is saying, you must remember that he has just said in verse 4 that the government official is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So in verse 5 he says you must be subject not only for wrath or because of wrath, that is to avoid the wrath of the government, but also, and this is the third reason now in this passage, for conscience' sake. In other words, there are three reasons in this passage for why you should submit to government. The first, in verses 1 and 2, is philosophical. God has ordained government. The second, in verses 3 and 4, is practical, to avoid punishment. And the third, given in verse 5, could be called personal, for conscience sake that as a Christian you know government is ordained of God and for your conscience sake so that you can be at peace with yourself you should submit to government reminds me of an article I read once where a citizen wrote the IRS and said several years ago I did not pay as many dollars in taxes as I should have. Enclosed is a check for $50. I assume that that will take care of it and I will be able to sleep at night. If I find that I can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Now Paul says, you ought to obey government for conscience' sake. Very simply, submit. It's ordained of God to punish evildoers, and you'll be at peace with yourself if you do. Now, Paul concludes this part of the discussion by giving us the results, as I'm going to choose to call it, some very practical results coming out of this responsibility. Verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. 
Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, the practical results are very simple. Number one, you are to pay taxes. I think it's incredible that the Bible would say they are God's servants attending continually to this very thing. Isn't that an interesting statement? The Bible really is a realistic book with incredible divine insight. Notice, attending continually. They understood IRS back in the first century. But the staggering thing to me is that that's what he says God intended for them to do. Obviously, God has given them a purpose that takes people to perform that purpose, and they have to be paid. So, God says they have the right to taxation, and we ought, therefore, to render to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. May I just say, in passing, that Jesus, only one time in all of his ministry, supernaturally provided money to his disciples. And that was when their taxes came due. They went down to the river and they caught a fish and money was in the mouth of the fish. So the Bible is so concerned that we pay taxes that God was willing on at least one occasion to supernaturally provide the means to do so. He provided the supernaturally money in the mouth of the fish so that you could go pay taxes. So we ought to pay taxes as under the Lord because that's his will. One other thing, he says, render therefore to all their due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now custom is another way of saying taxes. Fear is simply talking about respect and honor you know. The two basic things he's saying in verses 6 and 7 is that you are to pay taxes and you are to give respect and honor to government officials. He says, render to all their due. That would include all levels of government officials, from the President of the United States to the governors of the various states to the mayor of the city to the policeman to the fireman to the building inspector. That we ought to respect them and honor them. I think we all have participated in jokes about political officials and some of them have done things that were funny and maybe they needed to have jokes thrown at them. But also, we can carry that too far. I think that um, we have joked about the IRS and perhaps there is a legitimate sense in which they charge too much for taxes. Yet, we have to be careful to honor and respect that God-ordained institution and practice. So that um, one fellow said, when he started paying taxes, instead of calling it the internal revenue, 
He called it the infernal revenue or the eternal revenue. Some of those can get out of hand to the point that we are not honoring and respecting government officials and government God-ordained practices. So the very simple practical result is that we are to pay taxes and personal honor to government officials. If nothing else, we are to respect their position. So the sum of this passage is that believers should submit to government. That's the whole point. It's stated in the first verse, which means that we're to pay taxes and personal respect to government officials for the simple reason that government is ordained by God to promote that which is good and to punish evil. In conclusion, let me just say one other thing. Is this absolute? I mean, the text says that we are to submit. Is that absolute? Are there any exceptions to this? And the answer is, yes, there are exceptions. As a matter of fact, from a biblical point of view, there are exceptions to all constituted authority. God has given various levels of authority responsibility. If in the exercise of their authority they go too far, they violate God's authority, then you are confronted with the possibility of either disobeying government or God. So either way you go, there's disobedience involved. In that kind of a situation, you must obey God and disobey government. I think those kinds of situations, at least for us, would be rare, but they are there. In the book of Acts, they were preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ, and they were told not to do that. And the apostle Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And so, rather than disobey God, they disobeyed government in that case. So I just want to point out that this passage is teaching, yes, there are exceptions. But those are the exceptions. The point of the passage is that we must not resist. We must not rebel. We must not be in opposition to government. But our basic attitude and stance must be one of submission. However aggravating that can sometimes be, whether it's your disagreement with the tax code or some law that could send you to jail or the building code or the traffic laws, the scripture teaches that we ought to cheerfully respect, honor, and submit to government. Ever find yourself chafing? You write out the income tax check and send it to the IRS? Perhaps if we had a biblical attitude, we would do it with gratitude. Can you ever imagine the suggestion 
that you would write out a check to the IRS and thank God for the privilege? If we were respecting and honoring with the right attitude, perhaps we would do it with a little more grace and a little more of the right attitude. I tell you, to help your attitude toward the government in this country, you should see the government in other countries. Then you would thank God for the privilege of paying taxes, the privilege of voting. While some in some elections no candidate may please you, you'd thank God you at least have the choice to vote. But maybe the bottom line for us, we're not going to start an insurrection tomorrow. We're the most submissive crowd the government's got, right? But we just need to do it with honor and respect and a submissive attitude. Some years ago, one preacher said, I buy gas and pay its tax. Thankful for the fine roads over which I drive. I enjoy the beauty of a national park paid for by our taxes. I see our lighthouses or the trail of a jet plane and I'm grateful for the forces that guard our coast and defend our skies. Some time ago, one of our news magazines carried the story of a stockholders meeting at which the president of the corporation stood for more than an hour talking about the government and its taxes. Finally, a lady arose and said, Mr. Chairman, I'm thankful for our country and I enjoy paying taxes. Will you please get to the point and tell us how much our profits are and what our dividends will be? I submit to you, that is a submissive attitude. Let's pray. Father, you've instructed us in your word to pray for peace, that we could live peaceable lives and the gospel could be spread. Your hand of blessing is on our country because we are experiencing peace and we thank you for it. Though we recognize that our government could be improved in many ways, we thank you for the blessings we do have, the government that we do have. While sometimes we feel that taxes are exorbitant, that money is not always spent the way we would wish, we're deeply grateful for the freedom that we have in this country, the roads that we have, parks that we have, the benefits that we have because of this government. And we recognize that this is a blessing that has ultimately come from you. We're thankful for it. So, Father, as uh, we interface with government in our daily lives, remind us again and again this is just one of the blessings that we have from your good hand. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.